What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I suggest you go in a different direction. Write something personal about you, your family, your life. I could write about the typical, I'm from a, a poor, crime-filled neighborhood, raised by a single mother, don't know my dad, blah, blah. It's cliche. So, Adam, is Dope the feel-good movie of the summer, or maybe an instant classic? I like to see that you're already sharpening your cliches, Josh. Shamik Moore there as Malcolm, the poor kid from South Central L.A. with dreams of going to Harvard, and the hero of writer-director Rick Famuyiwa's Dope, a hit at this year's Sundance Film Festival, and our review on this week's show. Plus the top five films of 1994. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll think, this list sounds familiar. Ahead on Film Spotting. Film Spotting is once again presented by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Continuing Mubi's partnership with the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, Mubi's showing two films by festival favorite director Fernand Melgar. The Fortress and Special Flight are both documentaries exploring the filmmaker's home country of Switzerland and how it treats migrants headed there to start new lives or meet up with their families. As a change of pace, Mubi is also showing Johnny Toe's Exiled. Toe's name's now synonymous with the steely cool of his sublimely stylish, resolutely professional Hong Kong gangster films, continuing Jean-Pierre Melville's legacy of crossing the wires of genre and art house. Movie says Exiled is full of nostalgic action grandeur and Toe at his most pure. I need to see more Johnny Toe. He should be a marathon subject, I believe, at some point here on Film Spotting. I like that idea. Every day, Movie's curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Let's see, Josh, just assembling our supplies for this week's top five, a box of chocolates, some Hakuna Matata, some uh, Hope, and where's my wallet? What's it look like? It's the one that says Bad Mother. Shut your mouth. On it. Yes, it's the top five films of 1994 later in the show. I've always wanted to say that to you. <laughs> but first, I didn't think I'd ever meet anyone as into 90s hip hop as Adam. But then I met Malcolm, the lead character of Dope. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Malcolm Adekambi. I'm a straight A student with nearly perfect SAT scores. He probably got like one of those photogenic brains. <laughs> you mean photographic memory? What'd I just say? I mean, yeah, you, you said it. Yeah, just reiterating. I play in a punk band with my friends, and I'm a 90s hip hop geek. You gonna say something or just stare at me? A bad day for most geeks would be being the butt of jokes. Some brother really needs to invent an app like ways to avoid all these hood traps. It is time we started expanding our horizons. We're not going to a drug dealer's birthday party. But when you live in the bottoms... Well, I'll go if you go. It only took about 10 minutes for me to get why Dope was such a hit at the Sundance Film Festival in January. Sundance is a festival for people who love movies. And Dope is a movie very much about other movies. Or at least heavily influenced by them. Let's consider this plot summary. Malcolm, Shamik Moore, is a geek, 
carefully surviving life in the bottoms, a tough neighborhood in Inglewood, California, filled with gangsters and drug dealers, while juggling his senior year of college applications, interviews, and the SAT. So we start with some Trey from Boys in the Hood. His dream is to attend Harvard. Throw in a little risky business, the Ivy League ambition and entrepreneurial spirit of a Joel Goodson. A chance invitation to a big underground party leads Malcolm and his friends into a gritty adventure filled with offbeat characters and bad choices. Depending on which generation claims you, you're either thinking of Doug Lyman's Go or Martin Scorsese's After Hours. If Malcolm can persevere, he'll go from being a geek to being dope to ultimately being himself. Cap it all off with, I don't know every teen coming-of-age movie ever made, perhaps one that writer-director Rick Famuyiwa even name-checks, John Hughes' The Breakfast Club, also a film about forging your own identity that challenges easy labels like geek. Josh, you're usually less impressed with meta-movies than I am. Did you have as much fun with Dope as those Sundance audiences obviously did? Probably not, because I think this is a movie that would benefit from an enthusiastic, large crowd. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that in the screening. We, we had just, each other. We did have each other. And you just I just couldn't sense that you were that into it, Adam. You kind of ruined the experience You're for me. You're blaming me. me. So I'm going to blame you. <laughs> I got the same so, vibe from you, I should add. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's just say the, the couple of times that I laughed pretty loudly, it was clear I was alone <laughs> in my enjoyment. You know, those movies you mentioned, it didn't strike me, Dope didn't strike me so much as a meta movie. Clearly, there are those references. What I think maybe points to why it didn't work as well for me is consider all the different tones that the list of films you talked about hit. Maybe you could say they're all comedies except, of course, Boys in the Hood. But I think that gets at it. This is very much a Boys in the Hood movie as much as it is a risky business movie. And it is, I don't want to say all over the map. It's a little more controlled than that. But the experience of watching it felt uneven in this sense of tone. At first I thought, is it going to go as broad? Because it starts out pretty broad Mm -hmm. in the characterizations of these three friends especially. Is this going to go as broad as something like don't be a menace in South Central while drinking your juice in the hood? I think well done. I think that's it. And no, it's not. It has a, a lot more on its mind than spoofery for sure. And I think it's most successful, though, when it's somewhere between that and Boys in the Hood and is not shying away from what is a rough neighborhood where real crime takes place. And this kid is in daily danger But it makes jokes out of that. And I sort of like that because that's very much a response to trauma, right, is to joke about it and laugh about it. Mm -hmm. Comedy as catharsis. And I think that dope is at its best when it's hitting that tone, when it's just staying not even light, but somewhere between light and satirical and recognizing the reality of this kid's situation, but filtering it through his unique personality. Mm-hmm. And it helps that Shamik Moore has a lot of charm here in the lead role, I think. So it's filtering it through his personality and through the movie's style and voice. When it has a firm grip on that voice, it's really clicking. But that's something that, for me, began to fade as the film went on, especially, I guess we could call it the the risky business sequence where he becomes a businessman, mm-hmm. somewhat forced to become a businessman to get out of a tough situation and things get a little more serious. And then an ending that really put the brakes on the levity in an attempt to say something that I felt it had already been saying a lot more cleverly and lightly mm-hmm. earlier in the picture and 
earlier in the picture, it worked better for me. I'm with you on basically everything you said, including the ending, where I do think it gets a little unnecessarily didactic and challenges us with a question that not only is redundant based on the whole movie expressing this already, but I don't think it actually really applies to most viewers. It sort of wants to challenge you or provoke you a little bit, and I'm not sure what it was really provoking us with was as challenging as maybe the movie thinks it is. And I should say, in terms of its meta qualities, I don't think it's as much interested in referencing those movies I mentioned as it is very much aware of itself as a movie from some of the editing choices and the titles on screen and the narration, even Forrest Whitaker, the executive producer is also the narrator here, though. I'm not sure why. Maybe we'll come back to that. It very much is a movie that knows it's a movie and is winking at you an awful lot. And it's got such a good spirit for some of the reasons you touched on. Its heart is certainly in the right place. Its tongue mostly is planted in its cheek where it should be, even when it's dealing with darker subject matter. But I suppose it says something about the experience I had that my favorite part of the movie, spoilers, was the lead actor Shamik Moore dancing to the Humpty Dance in the end credits. He was really good. He's really good. He's got it down. I dig that song. I guess that's a little bit of nostalgia for me. So that was my favorite part of the film, unfortunately. This movie just wore me down. And admittedly, I was already feeling worn down when I walked into the theater. So it was just not a good fit. Maybe this is mostly on me and the mood I was in, Josh. But there's a point where one character says, you always have a choice. He's telling that to Malcolm because he's kind of not taking responsibility for what got him in this position. And this movie seems determined to drive that point home about having a choice always by having Malcolm have to make more choices in a feature film than any character in the history of cinema. There are so many plots and subplots and supporting characters and characters we meet for two minutes. And at some point I realized I just didn't care about any of them. I I tuned out. Yeah, it breaks. And that's exactly the point it does. You're right. I was thinking maybe it was the second mention of bitcoins that it really (laughs) lost me, but it was even before that. And I mentioned Forrest Whitaker, some of these elements that are just all over the place and make this movie feel messy and that did ultimately keep me really at an arm's length. You get Forrest Whitaker, who has a voiceover early in the film. And it kind of works. And then it disappears for such a long stretch that when it comes back, I was confused for a second. I'd completely forgotten that that was even an element in the film. I think that's because Whitaker gives this. It's actually a fairly amusing, dry delivery of reciting these biographical facts about Malcolm. Mm -hmm. And it sets up. There's almost a little flavor of Wes Anderson to it in the use of narration. And that to me establishes a Wes Anderson actor. Yes, yes. Tony Revolori. That's right. We got to get to that um, because that's one of the things I was looking forward to about Dope. But it sets up this sense of comedic remove. Mm -hmm. And I think by the time the voiceover narration comes back, Dope has transformed partly into a very different movie. And so it is a little bit jarring. Now, earlier, I think there's some pretty smart comedic stuff. I like that end credits dance sequence as well. But I really enjoyed some of the interplay among the friends and Mm -hmm. some of the conversations that set... They define how Malcolm and his friends are set apart from not only the characters in this movie, but maybe some of the movie stereotypes that we're used to seeing set in neighborhoods like this. There's a great conversation involving 
drones. Yeah. You know I love, I <laughs> you love, love drones, drones no matter what. I never expected <laughs> to get some good drone stuff No, <laughs> in dope. But they're having this conversation, a bunch of drug dealers, about one's in favor of drones, the other isn't, and how, well, they're just going to come to South Central at some point. They're going to bring the drones there. And there's some wordplay with Slippery Slope, which is this That's term funny. that comes back and I forth. I laughed out loud. And, but it's what's funny about that is it also ties into this idea of lingo mm-hmm. and language and how that's used to be part of a subcultural element or not part of it. One of the very clever things about Dope is the way Malcolm is often at a loss with what his supposed peers, so others who people from outside of this neighborhood might look at the two of them and say, I can't even tell a difference between these black kids. Right. But here we are in the midst of these conversations, and Malcolm is almost as much of a loss as that person would be with the slang terms. There's another funny moment where a drug dealer calls him on a phone to get something that's been stuffed in his backpack, and the drug dealer starts using some slang and Malcolm- About my lunch. About his lunch and sandwiches and bologna, and he tries to play along. Yeah. And it doesn't connect at all. That's all good stuff. Very smart about the questions of identity and who you are and how you present who you are. But it's done, again, lightly without much intense drama needing to be put behind it, which is unfortunately what we do get to later. Up next, fight over lunch turns deadly in Inglewood. Did he actually say I'll kill you and your friends if you don't sell these drugs or just you? What? Don't act like you weren't curious, too. Not directly. He was talking about Amazon and Rick Ross CDs not mm-hmm. getting to their customers. Don't even buy CDs anymore, dog. Jim, that's not the point. Are you going to go and sell on the corner? Because we're a bunch of bitches, man. Speak for yourself, Chip. Yes, I am a bitch ass. I don't give a. I own that. Who are you trying to impress, Diggy? <laughs> we're talking about Molly, Jim, not heroin. Okay, all we got to do is find the white people, go to Coachella. Lollapalooza. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film that was a standout hit at January Sundance Film Festival. It's called Dope. It's out in wide release. And I think the first 20 to 30 minutes of this film really is pretty entertaining. And that drones conversation is great because that's where the movie really is playing with our expectations. And you've got these characters who a lot of people would look at and think, well, they're thugs. And you might assume certain things about them but of course they're carrying on a perfectly normal conversation it shows that they're aware of things in the world and it catches you a little bit and i like the fact that it does and that character and i can't believe i did this i was in such a rush to get in here i didn't look up his name because i'm going to single him out i think actually the most interesting character in the film might be dom dom dominic who is this guy who is a drug dealer who ushers Malcolm into this world and really is the instigator behind everything that goes wrong in Malcolm's life after he goes to this party. Well, unfortunately, what happens to Dom? He disappears. He does. The movie gets rid of him and we hear from him maybe one other time and that's it. Also introduced early on and connected with Dom and with Malcolm is the love interest character played by Zoe Kravitz. That dynamic is also really interesting. And unfortunately, she disappears for a huge chunk in the movie as we have to keep just spiraling into more and more absurdity. And Josh, everything I've heard about this film from people who really enjoy it, any little bit of praise I've seen, it usually involves the word energy. They talk about the energy of it and the speed and the pace of it. And I get that there's a manic quality to it because there's so much going on, as we've discussed. But within the scenes themselves, within some of these sequences, it really is awfully stilted to me. And the humor, after the good stuff of the first 20 to 30 minutes, it just doesn't have that kind of screwball patter that the movie actually needs it to have. There's a scene where he's talking to 
an authority figure, a guy he's supposed to be looking up to who's interviewing him about potentially getting in to Harvard. And they have this conversation where he tries to relate to Malcolm by referencing Amazon and buying CDs. And he, of course, is constantly stopping him to point out that nobody buys CDs anymore and we wouldn't buy from Amazon or whatever. And it's supposed to be really funny, and it's really not, because there's just something about the rhythms of that conversation, and there are many of these scenes in the movie that just don't really connect the way you feel like they should. Yeah, that scene in particular is trying to be threatening and funny at the same time, and it doesn't work. Dom is played by Rakim Mayers here, it says on IMDb. And I think as far as the cast goes, I, I do want to get back to the energy thing, because I, I think that's an important point you made. But as far as the cast goes, Revelori is he just seems to be in a couple of ways in the wrong film. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't you get a some sense of comic timing, but it seems different for what the film is calling for. And most importantly, I feel like both his character and the girl who's in this trio played by Kiersey Clemens, they are never really more than their brief sketch characteristics, which define them as different Mm -hmm. from maybe the average high school kids right. in this neighborhood, whatever that might be. Because of her sexuality and his ethnic identity. I guess, though, they never re there's one throwaway comic scene about his ethnic identity, and they really don't explore that anymore. And I, that's what I'm talking about. It's like both of those characters are very much, here's why they stand apart from everyone else. Okay, that's all you need to know. And once the movie tries to become more than a broad comedy, you really need more than that to be hooked into it. Now, the energy level, it has it in some really good scenes where Famu Yiwa is doing some interesting formal stuff with split screen that I think works pretty well in one sequence where action is taking place at the same time in two different areas. And it's dependent on, it's not just random, it's dependent. The jokes are dependent on what's happening in each one. I think that works. And I do like some of the the editing has, um, there are some scratchy pauses here that yeah. often match the music. So there's definitely some liveliness and energy to that that does carry the film just doesn't carry it throughout. And I liked a lot of those same touches you're mentioning, but there are other times where it feels gratuitous and it feels like too much winking and is being too clever for its own good. There's one sequence where Malcolm is stopped in a car at a red light and a guy goes by in a car and it pauses on him and we recognize immediately who it is as Malcolm is recognizing this is someone he knows, someone he was actually just going back to see. You didn't but like then, the rewind? But then we get the rewind again. And yeah, I'm but not it's sure musical that, too. I, know, I mean, it does it, play into that idea. I think, yeah, a I guess. Bit. I just felt like some of that was gratuitous. As for Shamik Moore as Malcolm, you mentioned him. I do really like his performance and I agree that there is a certain charm to him. But maybe it's because I've been revisiting Brisson and Diary of a Country Priest and Pickpocket for my class, but I like his performance primarily for how uncharismatic it is, actually. Hmm. I think that more often than not, the look on his face, the emotion that he's giving off is just one of total shock. And whatever well, situation he's, he's in, he's whether... He's bewildered a lot. Yeah, he's bewildered, whether he's <laughs> yeah. dancing with the girl or he's sitting really close to this girl or who knows what other crazy drug situation he's got himself in. That's another sequence, too. There's a party scene here that involves tweets and responses to photos and it's this whole social media sequence that feels like it belongs in a whole nother movie and one of a few years ago it, it exactly. feels very dated too yeah. yeah but i do like 
that performance. I like how, I guess, subtle overall that performance was. I will say that uh, the movie often made me think of a film from last year, Dear White People, that addresses a lot of these same identity issues. That's from writer-director Justin Simeon, and it's different setting in Ivy League, mostly white college, and focuses on a handful of black students who are there trying to establish their own identities. And there's a somewhat similar character played by Tyler James Williams, who's sort of a sci-fi nerdy student, also gay, so that makes it even more difficult for him to find his place. On campus, And that's a film that did just strike. It found its voice and struck the right tone and stuck with it. And I think that is that is the key difference to me in making something like this work where you're you're addressing big ideas and contemporary ideas and important ideas in terms of I mean, look at the conversation we've been having recently about Rachel Dolezal, who's claiming a black identity. Mm -hmm. She was born white. So these are very timely ideas. But Dear White People managed to address them lightly, but not dismissively. And somehow in Dope, it just gets a little bit too heavy in the end to really feel like it's moved anything forward. Dope is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. June is already coming to a close, which means it's time to assess the movie year at its midpoint. We'll do just that with the film spotting poll next and also spend a few minutes on the David Gordon Green, Al Pacino joint, Manglehorn. Stay with us. I'm slicker this year. I'm slicker this year. Myrtle Ave, A-Train, got the pick in my head. And what, 16 joints later still lounge. Fresh from flowers in my baggy boots to dust. Stylish tight beats, busted cami fatigues. 50,000 leagues of black, so a chef. Can we avenue slide, player style, get a walk the east sun, wow, Brooklyn, New York. Creamy kid, Joe Smith, and Wesson with a blessing. The angular slang flow spots bang. 11, hanging like bats, the 12 inch wax. Say Scorpio, and my hair say bro, and my blood say bro. My click say yo. Make sparks from the barrel, mental pistol. To the depths I die, seems lunar like aqua. The cool blast mother, we black, we wildflowers. Scott rock, had them all, I got the ball. And roll a little practice through these project calls. The three color black can hold my baggy sack. 7182 Omega. Black motion is ocean style. Slick in my way since days of the classic. Now glamour boys wanna be triple fatted, but I'm slicker this year. I'm slicker this year, yeah. East born, beast can always on. Lovely. All over the city in your tape deck blasting. Seven R's in the back, glass niggas in a camouflage. Hey folks, just a quick interruption to mention that Film Spotting is once again brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform. Josh, we've been getting over the past several months a lot of testimonials from Film Spotting listeners who are using Squarespace, including Samuel Calvin, who says, Hey guys, I'm a cinematographer out of Oklahoma, and this website displays some of my recent work and demo reel. It's worth checking out, scalvindp.com. He says, thanks, love the show. And Kagan Breitenbach, longtime listener of Film Spotting, writes in with a testimonial for his website. I just wanted to thank you for introducing me to Squarespace. I am a film and video game music composer, and thanks to Squarespace, I have a website that looks great where I can confidently send clients to hear my music and watch my demo reel. Squarespace is incredibly simple to use, and the tech support is great. I've always received responses from actual people within an hour or two of asking a question. I highly recommend Squarespace to create 
creative entrepreneurs who want an elegant-looking website who don't have time to fuss with writing code from scratch. Feel free to check out my website, kaganbreitenbach.com. We'll link to both Samuel's site and Kagan's site in our show notes as well, if you didn't catch those. And those guys are obviously both creative. They're both working in the movie industry, in the entertainment industry. There are many people out there who use Squarespace who aren't part of those worlds, but have just as much success with the platform because their sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level, and there is no coding required. The tools are intuitive and easy to use. They offer state-of-the-art technology to power your site, ensuring security and stability, and they offer a free domain name, too, if you sign up for one year. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code FILM to get a special offer on your first purchase. That's squarespace.com. Do you know who this man is? Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Ah. Uh. <laughs> you didn't mention that. Well, because that stuff doesn't matter. That's ego stuff, you know? Are you kidding me? I, I love your music. I grew up on it. Thank you. That makes me feel really good, Melinda Ledbetter. Okay. <laughs> okay. Good enough, right? It's a nice name. This is Film Spotting. That was a clip from the new Brian Wilson biopic of sorts, Love and Mercy. Paul Dano getting a lot of attention for his performance as the Pet Sounds era Wilson. John Cusack there as the 80s era Wilson with Elizabeth Banks and Paul Giamatti. Love and Mercy is among the films. Josh, we're both hoping to catch up with before our best of the year so far show. That's coming up in a couple weeks. We is are that, going to be off for the fourth. Is that streaming anywhere or is it only theaters? I think it's only in theaters, okay. which is really the big obstacle so far in both of us seeing it. But it has gotten some good reviews, including our very own co-producer, Sam Van Halgren, recently caught up with Love and Mercy. I just and saw that on Letterboxd. Does yeah. recommend it. Best movies of the year so far is also the subject of this week's poll question. That's coming up in a bit. But first, the results from our current poll in which we ask you to name the best Al Pacino performance since his 1992 Oscar win percent of a woman and if you're listening to the podcast version of film spotting in a little bit here we will spend a minute or two on pacino's latest manglehorn our radio listeners if you want to hear the full show with that review visit filmspotting.net or subscribe to the show in itunes so josh best post oscar pacino performance the choices were carlito carlito's way lefty ruggiero from donnie brasco lieutenant vincent Hanna from heat lowell bergman from the insider Maybe Will Dormer from Insomnia or Other. You can go with Other if you're a big, big fan of The Devil's Advocate. How did it come out, Josh? <laughs> Must not have been many of those. Other only received 8% of the vote. Carlito in Carlito's Way, 11%. Lowell Bergman from The Insider, 16%. Will Dormer, Insomnia, 17%. little closer, very close actually, up here at the top. Lieutenant Vincent Hanna from Heat, 23%, but winning Lefty Ruggiero from Donnie Bresco with 26% of the vote. I can't remember how we voted when we shared our votes as we released this poll. Where did you go, Josh? I did go with Ruggiero. Okay. Yeah. I think that's where I went as well. I do feel a little vindicated. At the same time, I feel disappointed in the fact that Will Dormer from Insomnia actually beating out Lowell Bergman from The Insider. The vindication comes from the fact that initially we were only going to go with those three options, The Insider, Heat, and Donnie Brasco, because 
between the three of us, including Sam, we just couldn't imagine anybody voting any other way. But I know there's a lot of Nolan love out there, and there is some appreciation for that movie. I don't love it, but it's a pretty good performance from Pacino. So not shocked, I guess, but a little disappointed that he beat out Lil Bergman, because I think that's a wonderful performance in that Michael Mann film. A couple of listeners wrote in here after they made their votes. Dale N. says, I have to go with his underrated and understated performance in Insomnia. As a man who cannot sleep due to guilt and the ceaseless godlike eye of the Alaskan sun, Pacino is haunted and haggard. It really does feel like he hasn't slept in a week, and he reveals the complicated, sullied soul of a man who has compromised his morals in order to see justice served. I remember seeing this movie in the theater and being blown away by how naked and weary he seemed, and also by how well Nolan, coming off of his breakthrough memento, could operate within a more straightforward narrative. It proved to me that Nolan wasn't a one-trick pony, that he really did have the goods, and that Pacino may not be as washed up and obsolete as I'd thought. He's nearly outshone by Robin Williams' stellar performance, one of the late actor's finest, but manages to hold his own despite playing it much smaller. Here's hoping Pacino still has something like that left in him. I'd love for him to surprise me again. Zach in Queens writes, just saw The Insider for the first time, and wow, is that an actor showcase. Pacino does a fantastic job of playing the complexities of a compassionate man who will still do anything to get a story. There's a nice push and pull between his idealism and the realities of business that Pacino really shows the struggle of. That being said, while I voted for The Insider, I think Donnie Brasco shows an incredible amount of range by having him play against type. Yeah, he's a gangster in that, but Pacino is traditionally all bravado and confidence in those types of roles, and yes, even the insider. In Brasco, his patheticness is palpable. Heard from Max O'Connell in Rapid City, South Dakota. I gotta go with Carlito. I appreciate how beaten down and pathetic he is in Donnie Brasco and how he uses over-the-top Pacinoisms deliberately for intimidation and heat. But everything about Carlito's way defines to me what can make late Pacino great. He's a little less naturally volcanic and a lot wearier. He's still the charismatic, often charming guy. He could be in the lighter moments in Serpico, there were a few, or the playful bits of Scarface. But there's a greater sense of desperation, particularly whenever he's dealing with his spiraling friend, played by Sean Penn. That's a sense of desperation that older great actors can really nail, and I think Pacino nails it in Carlito's way. Steven chimes in, it's easy to forget that in the same year Pacino won the Best Actor Award, he was nominated as Best Supporting Actor for his role of Ricky Roma and Glengarry Glenn Ross. Maybe that same year thing makes him ineligible for this poll. It does indeed. But if the problem is choosing between the -the over-the-top Pacino and his subtler, more actorly self, why not pick the role in which, perhaps because of David Mamet's highly stylized dialogue, he gets to do both at once. Yeah, Michael tried to pull that when he was sitting in with me on last work. week's show. He he wanted to vote for that performance. The same year thing does disqualify it. Otherwise, I'd probably go with his turn as Ricky Roma. we got to close with this one, though, from our friend Peter Labuza. It says New York City. I don't think he's in New York City anymore. I believe he's in L.A. now. He's in L.A., but maybe he just likes to still fashion himself as a New Yorker. Al Pacino playing himself in Jack and Jill is honestly great. The film is sloppy, but it's the kind of bizarre meta-performance that he gives 100% to, making fun of every bad performance he gave for 20 years. Karina Longworth wrote a fantastic defense of his performance in her Kaedu cinema book, and anyone who hasn't seen the final gag in the film is missing out. Well... Consider me missing out. We'll link to it in the show notes if you want to watch it and spoil the whole movie. But, you know, Peter, it's just so tired. It's just such a cliche to use the words Jack and Jill and Kaya do cinema in the same sentence. I feel like I read it 10 times a day in various film magazines and websites. But OK, it's a little if, tiresome. That's, if that's where you want to go. Thank you, Peter, for that. That brings us to our new poll question, which we will share the results of in two weeks as we are going to reveal our top five movies of the year so far. This is your chance to weigh in. And I feel pretty good about the selection here. I think if you've looked at some of the lists so far that have 
been coming out. These movies are the ones that have gotten a lot of the buzz and are appearing very high on those lists. So we're only giving you four options, it looks like, but we will give you other if somehow one of these four movies did not do it for you. Josh, the options are... Ex Machina, my leading choice at this point for the best of the year so far. Inside Out, It Follows, Mad Max Fury Road, and then other. Yeah, as a matter of fact, this is pretty much looking like my list at this point. I have a few things I, I definitely want to wow. try to fit in, but um, not a bad group of films there. No, definitely not. And maybe some of those wide-release movies that were very popular at the box office, like Avengers, Age of Ultron, or Furious 7, or Jurassic World, much to our chagrin if you were to include that. Maybe that's where you want to go. That could be other. Cinderella, of course, another movie that did pretty well at the box office, I believe, that got some good critical buzz. So, Lots of ways you could go in this poll question, but we're going to stick with those four as your main choices, and we'll see how many of those four make our individual lists in a couple weeks as we share our top five movies of the year so far. Vote now, please, at filmspotting.net, and if you leave a comment, we always hope you do, please let us know where you're writing from. We did want to take a moment to acknowledge the sad news in the movie world this week. Film composer James Horner dying in a plane crash Tuesday. He was piloting the plane. He was 61. You just heard music from Horner's score to Apollo 13. He was a seven-time Oscar nominee for films like Aliens, Field of Dreams, Braveheart, A Beautiful Mind, Avatar. He won two Oscars in 98 for his Titanic score and for co-writing My Heart Will Go On. That was that year's best original song, and you'll hear some more of his work coming up in the Jake Gyllenhaal boxing movie, Southpaw. With this news, we got an email from Patrick in Gainesville, Florida. With the passing of James Horner, he said, I was wondering if you guys would consider doing a top five of his movie scores. I'm not sure what you already have planned for the show this Friday, but I figured since he has so many wonderful scores to choose from, it could be an interesting top five. Also, and perhaps this makes my suggestion somewhat selfish, as an elementary school music teacher, I would find it especially interesting to hear you guys discuss music in depth. I always like those top fives where we can focus on music as it relates to movies, and I think James Horner certainly deserving of a top five like that. We didn't have time as this news broke to prepare such a list for this week's show, but who knows, maybe somewhere down the road we can do that. Of course, another reason why we couldn't do it is there's a moratorium that's been placed on mentions from me of Field of Dreams. Yes. Even if those top fives were actually recorded more than a year and a half apart, listeners don't want to hear me talk I'm about that movie of anymore. You, so, about it. you know, we did, uh, to point Patrick to a uh, music theme top five, we did the one of top five movie themes and that was with michael i believe mm -hmm. i don't think horner made any i don't of think those he lists, did because i did look back at my list and i don't think he was there perhaps that makes him more eligible for a top five of his own at some there point there you go dear claire loving you is the only thing i ever done right you know you're wearing this very similar dress that claire used to wear Who's Clara? She was a very special woman in my life. She was really great company. So since David Gordon Green returned to his roots, I guess you could say, he made that foray into broad comedy for a while. But since he's returned with things like Prince Avalanche in 2013, Joe, the same year or, or maybe the year after, 
you and I have been pretty high on his work, I mm-hmm. think, overall. And uh, this new film, Manglehorn, with Al Pacino, seems to be in the same vein. A uh, small-scale story, Pacino plays an aging locksmith who's pretty much chased away everyone in his life, you get the sense, by the point we meet him, except for his cat, and whiles away his days uh, on his own, drinking, doing some work, and generally looking for some form of connection that he's just not able to find. Is Green keeping up a good streak here, or is this one a little bit of a blip for him, would you say? I think it's a blip, unfortunately. Yeah, I can't say that I enjoyed this movie, and I love Pacino. As I've said a million times, I even love him in Scent of a Woman. There's rarely a Pacino performance that I can't find something to appreciate. And I guess I appreciate here just how much he goes for it with this character. Following Joe, I will note that it's a very similar movie in some ways, not just because it seems like Nicolas Cage, of course, needed his career a little bit resuscitated, needed a good role to play, a really meaty role, and a role that asked him to be subtle and asked him to be small. And that's what this movie asks Pacino to do. We get very little of that bravado that we've seen so much from him over the past 20 years. And the characters are even similar in terms of their regret and repression. He doesn't seem to be harboring the same amount of anger that Joe is as Nicolas Cage is in that movie, but certainly he's someone who seems to be every day dealing with a lot of pain and angst and torment and is constantly trying to keep it at bay. So I thought maybe something interesting would happen with that exploration and how Pacino would explore it specifically in his performance. But as far as I can tell, the way he explores it and the way David Gordon Green lets him explore it is to basically just turn the whole movie over to him. Hmm. Scene after scene where he entrusts in Pacino. And if you're going to entrust an actor, there are a few you can entrust more than Al Pacino to dive into a scene, to go interesting places. I'm guessing there was improvisation here. There had to be. It feels like There's it. There's some and a use lot of, times, of non-professional actors, as there you David go. Gordon Green does, and so you can sense that some of these are looser scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a real looseness to it, which can be thrilling in a dangerous sort of way, kind of walking a wire. And I feel... Like Pacino's wobbling a lot in so many of these scenes, though. And unfortunately, rather than getting to the end of that wire or doing anything really transcendent, he just stays mired in the muck of this character. And kind of the grimmer and the more depressing and the more mumbly even at times he can make it, the better it is. Or maybe he thinks he's going to these dark places that are revealing something it revealed very little to me. It seemed like a case where David Gordon Green turned his movie over to a towering actor and it didn't work. That's true about being stuck in the mire and perhaps evidence of it is the fact that the ending to me really felt unearned and sort of tacked on. Mm -hmm. It's a very predictable redemption tale and you can sort of see where it's going, but even when it comes, it just feels like, oh yeah, I guess we just had to end there because that's where this sort of story ends. And perhaps it's for the reason you're talking about is that there's no progression in the performance. I do think just physically, I think I probably liked it a little bit more than you overall. If you're a David Gordon Green fan, I would say it is worth checking out. Physically, Pacino is something to look at here. Yeah. And it made me think, you know, the, the way he his face has aged uh, – These iconic actors somehow have an advantage over an everyman 
actor as they age in that we can see the years because we know instantly what they used to For look sure. like. Yeah. And life is just dripping off his face here. He he looks like a a wax candle with the, you know, but lines are running down his face. And that carried me through quite a bit of the first half of this movie is just seeing him, you know, yes, it's a declamorized performance and icons give these every once in a while. What you really need to do is inhabit that within the character itself. I think he does do that enough. And so it was interesting to watch him. But as that got a little older, as you said, didn't really progress anywhere. I do think Manglehorn is also something of an interesting formal experiment for Green, who jumps back and forth between maybe dreamy realism is the best way to describe what he does, because these are films, many of his films are set very much in reality, but there's this poeticism to them. Sure. We saw that in Prince Avalanche. Yeah. Prince Avalanche had a lot of that. And this is maybe a little bit more realism, but the way the movie, especially collapses the sounds and brings us in and out of Manglehorn's head where he has this inner monologue and sometimes he's commenting on what he's seen or talking to people, but he's really talking to himself. I found that to be compelling just from a formal point of view. There's the one moment even where he's waking up with an alarm clock and he kind of covers his ears to stop the alarm clock and we kind of hear that on the soundtrack go in and out and it deadens and gets louder. So that carried me along for a little while. But I think overall, this is going to be a blip, probably in both of their careers. David Gordon Green enthusiasts, you should at least check it out. There definitely is not just a magical realism. There's a blatant supernatural element to some parts of this film and to this character that I'm not sure did anything for me at all. I'm still thinking about it a little bit, and I'm wondering if I'm being an idiot by giving it more weight than it really deserves by still dwelling on it a little bit. The performance, too, I'm with you that that really is in some ways the curiosity here. That's the reason to see it. If you are going to see it, there's, to go back to a word that we heard twice in those poll comments as listeners were sharing their feedback on favorite Pacino performances, we heard weary a lot as we talked about Will Dormer in Insomnia and Lefty and Donnie Brasco. You combine the weariness of those two characters and then take it times a hundred. And that's the weariness you see on display in this character. There's a sequence with Holly Hunter, who plays a little bit of a love interest in this movie, a character he's connecting with who works at the bank that he goes to every Friday, mainly to see her. They have a dinner that is by far the most painful to watch date I've ever seen. Yeah. And And I felt... So bad watching it, Josh, for Holly Hunter. I felt bad for the character who was embarrassed and hurt and everything about it went exactly the opposite of how she hoped it would. It was such a disappointment for her. I felt it for the character, but I really was at a remove because of Pacino's performance. I felt that same disappointment for Holly Hunter. I felt like she and she's a good actress. She knows how to bring it. I felt like she was trying so hard to connect with Pacino in that scene, to feed off each other, to give him something and get something. And he wasn't giving it. He was in his own world. And I know that that's the world the character is into to an extent, but he's giving nothing back to her to feed off of. And that just adds another level of pain as you're watching the scene. I have to agree with you. Holly Hunter, I love probably the best thing she's done recently is Top of the Lake, the miniseries from Jane Campion that wasn't too long ago. So she's certainly capable of still delivering. The problem with that scene, which is probably the worst one in the movie, is that what 
the characters are doing. He's rejecting her intentionally and harshly. The filmmakers have been doing throughout the film by essentially only using her as a function of his story mm-hmm. to a really galling degree. Can you tell that this movie has no interest in this woman aside from how she functions in his life? And so that gives Hunter nothing to work with. Pacino, for his part, he's just doing what the character would do. But when the movie's doing the same thing, then it comes across as insulting to both the character mm-hmm. and the actress. Manglehorn is out in limited release. It may be in some cities already. It's definitely opening in Chicago and I'm sure a few other cities this weekend if you want to see it. And if you do see it and agree or disagree with us, you can let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. All right, here's an Al Pacino fact for you, Adam. He released 14 movies in the 1990s, but none in 1994. That makes him ineligible for our list of the top five movies of 94, which we're revisiting next. Hoo-ah. Stay with us. The world is yours. The world is yours. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hey there, all of you over at the Film Spotting Mothership. Allison Wilmore here from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast. And on our latest episode, Matt Singer and I put some wood in the stove and fill our flasks to discuss Nuri Bilgis Chelan's Winter Sleep, winner of the Palm d'Or at last year's Cannes Film Festival. Inspired by the beautiful Snowbound Mountain Hotel in which Winter Sleep takes place, we'll be recommending some other movies that make memorable use of a hotel or resort setting, all of them available to rent or stream at home right now. To listen, search for us in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. You're listening to Film Spotting. It's top five time. This summer, we've been taking a little bit of a break, and we're revisiting some of our favorite top fives from the last couple of years. This week, it's a list that dopes Malcolm might appreciate. From March 2012, our top five movies of 1994. Malcolm might have preferred that we do the top five hip-hop albums of 1994, Josh, but I can't say that outside of the Beastie Boys, Ill Communication, I was following much hip-hop in 94. I was probably listening to a little Public Enemy then, but based on the dope soundtrack, Malcolm likely would have put something like Diggable Planets, Blowout Comb in his top five, Nas's debut, Illmatic. I know, Josh, you're a huge fan of the Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die. You had that on repeat in your freshman year dorm room. You know what? I 
I like to keep it more positive, actually. I did have diggable planets. Really? Yeah. It was the rebirth of Slick, Adam. Love and it. Arrested <laughs> Development, playing a little bit of that. So, yeah, Notorious B.I.G., not so much, I'm afraid. Your new film spotting nickname is Slick. Back in March 2012, the top five of 1994 marked a return to our year-by-year countdown list. I think this is the first one that we did together, Josh. We paired that top five with our very first Sacred Cow review. It was the film of 1994, no matter what your feelings are about it, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. And with that, wasn't the decision made that movie reviews 30 minutes or longer were okay? <laughs> that might have been the turning That's point. when it started. Pulp Fiction was when we decided, yes, every review had to be at least 30 minutes. That's fair. Sure. sure. A lengthy film, a lot to talk about. Completely understandable. Josh and I agreed that Pulp Fiction was not only the film of 94, it was the best film of 1994. So you won't hear it on our list. We set it aside. It's in a pantheon, which is appropriate since it is, in fact, in the film spotting pantheon. Let's get into that top five now with a clip from one of 1994's Best Picture nominees. Have you heard, Dad? There's this uh, congressional committee that's, um, well, they're investigating the quiz shows. Yeah, I read that. What's it about exactly? Well, evidently, certain of the contestants were given the answers in advance cheating on a quiz show it's like plagiarizing a comic strip well at any rate it seems the committee wants to call me to uh, testify oh i've testified before funding for the arts it's nothing i think this is a little different you run circles round them it's not exactly jefferson and lincoln down there anymore i think this is a little different that i think you'd be glad of the chance to clear your name Otherwise, people might believe. People will believe whatever they want to believe. That's not the issue. That's a scene from the movie Quiz Show, a Best Picture nominee from 1994, and we'd both agree, Josh, one of the best films of 1994, but not quite good enough, it seems, to make our list this nope, week. couldn't find a spot on mine. There you go. Just an honorable mention on the film spotting top five. Josh, what's your number five? My number five from 94, and I'll say before getting into this that this was a very daunting challenge. It's like trying to squeeze in a top five list of your top ten list for a year that you may have not even been reviewing. Right. Or I mean, this was this almost gave me hives trying to do this, but I had to set aside my top 10 proclivities and just dive right into it. Look at the films I remember best, most fondly, see how many I can before we recorded and come up with this list. Well, I always say if you don't break out in hives preparing for a top five list, then you're not working hard enough. <laughs> probably Josh, not. So. Probably not. Number five was Heavenly Creatures. Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures. This is why the Lord of the Rings trilogy worked. This is Jackson's fourth feature, and it proved that he could bring a human dimension to fantasy. Before this, he did the horror comedies Bad Taste and Dead Alive, and there was also the R-rated puppet extravaganza Meet the Feebles, which, if you've never seen, is definitely worth checking out. Here he tackles an intense crime drama about two teen girls who shared fantasy life gets out of control. So he's working with some of the same elements, but also new, different sorts of pure drama elements and really melds them together beautifully. It is indeed a miracle, one must feel, that two such heavenly creatures are real. Both sets of eyes so different far, hold many mysteries strange, impassively, they watch the race of man decay and change. Heavenly Creatures also introduced the movies to Kate Winslet, 
which has turned out to be quite a good thing. And Melanie Linsky. And I was just going to say, Melanie Linsky isn't too bad either. Mm-hmm. In things like Away We Go, where she has small parts, she really knocks them out of the park. So Heavenly Creatures, my number five. It's a great choice. I'm a big fan of that movie as well. For my number five film of 1994, I'm going to go a little more off the grid than that, more obscure than Heavenly Creatures. It's actually been a film that's been hard to find, I think maybe now available on DVD, but for a long time it wasn't. And it's an Italian film from the director Nanny Moretti called Caro Diario, which translates to Dear Diary. And I'll note that I strongly considered another unconventional kind of documentary. I don't think you can really call this film a documentary, but I'm a big fan as well of the 1994 film, 32 short films about Glenn Gould. But I went with Moretti in the end because he's kind of like the Italian Woody Allen. He's a writer, he's a director, he's an actor. He was always really known for his comedies, but then made more serious films like The Sun's Room, which won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 2001. Actually, just this past year, 2012, Nanny Moretti was the head of the jury there at Cannes. This is a movie, like I said, you can't really call a documentary, but it's shot like one. It's more of a, a biographical, personal essay. It's divided up into three parts on my Vespa, Islands, and Doctors. And you see Moretti riding his Vespa around Rome in the first one, and he's talking about movies, and he's actually on this bizarre quest to try to find Jennifer Beals from Flashdance. It's very funny. And then in the second one, he leaves the city to escape popular culture, to try to clear his head a little bit, but he goes with his friend who is obsessed with a soap opera. And so he deals with that. And then in the third one, it's called Doctors, he is diagnosed with a disease that Moretti in real life was actually diagnosed with where his symptoms were constant itching and he couldn't sleep and that sequence is more serious obviously it's a little bit more life and death but also as absurd as the others and I like this movie so much because it really explores this postmodern dilemma where you have a character who can't escape the simulacra around him he's in search of truth he's looking for something real the real Jennifer Beals the truth at one point about the great Italian filmmaker Pier Paolo Pasolini he goes to where he was murdered and tries to see if he can figure out something about the truth about what happened there. He's trying to find the real diagnosis and cure for his illness, and every doctor has a different theory and a different prescription for it. All of it, though, is incredibly funny, and Moretti is just such a smart, funny protagonist that you'll follow him anywhere, including just riding his Vespa around Rome. So I really love Caro Diario, and I hope more people eventually will get a chance to see it. Constant itching and couldn't sleep. That sounds like me putting together this list. There you go. I did manage a number four, though, Chungking Express. Wong Kar Wai's third film really gives Pulp Fiction a run for its money when it comes to a signature cinematic style. I'm trying to think of how to describe it. It's kind of like a a despondent extravagance that he manages to conjure up in his films. This one is a parallel narrative about two cops who are dealing with the loss of love and the possibility of new romance. But the narrative, such as it is, does little to evoke this theme of disconnection compared to what the visuals do. It's all in the visuals and the cinematic technique in a Wong Kar Wai film. One signature technique that he uses here, and I don't know how he does it, but he occasionally gets a figure or an object at the center of the frame to kind of stand still while all the other people are blurring past and around it. It's almost as if he's using slow motion and fast motion at once. What all this style does for Chungking Express and a lot of his films really is it makes the idea of romance ineffable. So you can't describe it. You can't really talk about it. You can see it. You can hear it. You can sense it. That's what happens Mm -hmm. in his movies. I think that's a great way to put it. Very sensual. Not only Chungking Express, but all of Wong Kar Wai's films. It's a great pick. My number four, I'm going to try to follow up Dear Diary here by upping the ante on postmodernism. For sheer spectacle, it's tough to beat natural born killers. The Oliver Stone film, written, of course, at least the original story, by Quentin Tarantino. 
And this is something that came up when we did our top 10 films of the year. I talked about The Tree of Life, and I mentioned that I kind of applied that that criteria that if every film from this year was going to be destroyed from 2011, you could only hang on to one film where you were putting it away in a time capsule for all time. I thought Tree of Life had to be that movie. That's not always the criteria I apply to top 10 lists or to these lists even, these year-by-year countdowns, but I did use it a little bit here. I think sometimes it can be instructive to think about it in those terms. You only have five movies. You can only save five films. So sometimes there's that distinction between what's the best and what's your favorite. I usually try to go with, well, they're the same thing. If it was my favorite, it's because it's really, really good. In this case, though, where I think Natural Born Killers is so appropriate for this top five, it goes back to what I joked about at the beginning of the show. I was just looking for some random facts about 1994 that kind of summed up the year. And you see Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. You see the OJ trial. You see Lorena Bobbitt. You see the media spectacle that really seems to have flourished in 1994. And you think that maybe Oliver Stone was prophetic in some way, obviously working on this film before that and getting it released in 1994. You think of the sleazy tabloid journalist that Robert Downey Jr. plays in the movie. It's a tough film to watch. It's extreme and it's hyperbolic in its form and its content. But that's what good satire is. And I think Natural Born Killers is good satire. The scene, for example, that really stands out that I'll always think of when I think first about Natural Born Killers is the Rodney Dangerfield scene playing Juliette Lewis's father and he's yelling at Mallory and he meets Mickey for the first time. It's horrifying and it's brilliant. It makes their life into this TV sitcom from hell. And I think it's emblematic of what he's doing satirically throughout the entire film. I'm actually a really big fan of Natural Born Killers. My number four. Hi, Dad. How is work? What work? I'm unemployed. Where you been, huh? Well, you look nice, Mallory. Yuck, you look like... Thanks, Mom. Well, I'm gonna go now. I'll be back at midnight, okay? What are you wearing, a broomstick and a trash bag? Why don't you put some meat on you, huh? A few pounds lighter, you'll be missing the opium. What the hell do you think you're going, huh? I'm going to the John Lee Hooker concert with Donna. I told you that yesterday. First off, you don't tell me anything. You ask my permission. Second, you're not going out in that hula house dress. You'll end up feathering your ass, you stupid bitch. And third, you're not going out at all. You didn't mow the yard. Yeah, that's one I would have liked to have revisited. The way you're talking about it makes it seem like it's the sort of movie that gets better because of some of those predicting qualities it might have. Yeah, that could be. I went with a documentary for number three, and it's Hoop Dreams. Last year's The Interrupters was another reminder of how vital director Steve James has been in putting a big screen face on otherwise ignored individuals. In this case, it's two poor Chicago teens who dream of playing professional basketball. Now, the best documentaries, I think, get us to look at things that we think we know and see them in a new way. And I'm a pretty serious Chicago Bulls fan. So this was an eye-opening picture of how the culture of the NBA influences the fortunes for good and for bad a lot of times of real kids and their families. This was a whole new world to me, even though I'd been a fan of the NBA since a kid to see this side of it. When I get in the NBA, I'm a, uh, first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to go see my mama. I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to go down and make sure my sister and my brother's okay. Try to get my dad Cadillac, Oldsmobile, so he could cruise in the game. I think Hoop Dreams also opened the possibilities 
for documentaries alone as an art form. We think about Michael Moore, but really Hoop Dreams was a landmark in that it allowed them to be epic films worthy of real Oscars. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean it got out of the documentary ghetto by getting a Best Editing nomination. Now, it didn't win, but even just the fact that it kind of broke through to nudge aside some of those real movies, as Hollywood likes to think of them, was a real hallmark. Yeah, though famously and controversially, it was overlooked for Best Documentary. Well, isn't that to be expected? I mean, it is at this point, unfortunately. But I'm always glad to see Hoop Dreams get some love here on the show. You're listening to Film Spotting, Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson, counting down our top five films of the year 1994. Hoop Dreams with Josh's number three pick. My number three is a fiction film that has either the grand honor or the dubious distinction of being the number one highest rated film, according to users of the Internet Movie Database in their top 250. Mm -hmm. It is the Frank Darabont film, The Shawshank Redemption, and I think it's been number one on that poll for a long, long time. So even as new generations discover it, and that list, we can mock it quite a bit, but there are some pretty good titles throughout that top 250. Overall, it's not as bad as I maybe thought it would be when I glanced at it for the first time in a long time today. The Godfather and The Godfather 2 were in the top five, so for the most part, that list is pretty decent. Pulp Fiction actually number four on that list of the 250. Shawshank, though, is number one, and it's a movie that I haven't had an opportunity to rewatch. I really have never examined the Shawshank Redemption, but fortunately, Josh, this isn't a review. We're not discussing it in detail. I have no obligation here to say anything more insightful (laughs) or analytical than what the great screenwriter William Goldman said when he picked it as his best picture of 1994 when he wrote an Oscars article for Premiere Magazine because it moved the hell out of me. That's how we put it. It's a great yarn with a great central relationship, that friendship between Red and Andy. Stylistically, I love how Darabont manages to make it feel a little bit like a fairy tale. It feels like this faraway land and a place we're not familiar with, but at the same time maintains the sense of realism. It's very grounded. There are high stakes in the film that we're really invested in. And of course, it's got the very memorable ending where it was maybe the only time at least the only time I can think of in cinema history where I know for a fact that test audiences were ultimately responsible for the film and they were right because the ending's pretty brilliant as it ended up. So The Shawshank Redemption is my number three. Those of us who knew him best talk about him often. I swear the stuff he pulled. Sometimes it makes me sad though. And to being gone. I have to remind myself that some birds aren't meant to be caged. Their feathers are just too bright. And when they fly away, the part of you that knows it was a sin to lock them up does rejoice. But still, the place you live in is that much more drab and empty that they're gone. Yeah, I've got to say, I didn't give that much consideration, and this is the snob in me, largely because of that IMDb list. Really? I I don't think I've seen it since it came out, maybe once since then, but it's been a while, and it's definitely deserving of a revisit. But I I see that list, and I I just feel like it's going to be populist in bad ways. Populist can be good, too. It is populist in good ways. Well, and maybe that's the case, so that may be unfair on my part. Instead, for number two, I went with Ed Wood. Tim Burton and Johnny Depp's biopic of Ed Wood, who's often cited as the worst director of all time, might actually be Burton's last great film when you look at his filmography now, before the size of his larger projects kind of became too big for him. This could have been a send-up of the notoriously bad 1950s exploitation films that Wood made, but instead what this movie has is so much affection. 
There's affection for filmmaking. There's affection strictly for the creative impulse, whether it's good or bad, what comes of it. There's affection for odd people with unusual habits. And it's just such a delight to watch a movie like this. There's actually, though, when you think about Edward now, a little bit of sadness to it as well. In today's increasingly homogenized marketplace of multiplexes, you have to wonder, could a movie like Ed Wood find a place? Or even the people who are portrayed in Ed Wood in today's cinema, could they find a place? It kind of feels like they couldn't. Maybe Mm -hmm. something like this could take place only on YouTube these days where kind of everyone could be their own Ed Wood. Mr. Weiss, I have never told anyone what I'm about to tell you, but I really want this job. I like to dress in women's clothing. You a fruit? No, not at all. I love women. Wearing their clothes makes me feel closer to them. You're not a fruit. No, I'm all men. I even fought in WW2. Of course, I was wearing women's undergarments under my uniform. You gotta be kidding me. Tim Burton seems like the only director that still really is focused on bringing these kind of characters to the big screen, though maybe with diminishing returns, as you mentioned. My number two is a film you already mentioned. It is the movie Hoop Dreams. Five years and 250 hours of footage may not get you an Academy Award nomination, but it's going to get Peter Gilbert and Steve James and Frederick Marks on this list twice, apparently. Of course, as you said, following the lives of these two aspiring future NBA stars. That's what they want to be. And we see their struggle as they they go to school and try to play basketball and also be students. And I love that you said how it showed you a whole new world, because that's something I made note of here as well. I think it showed many of us, for me, for a kid living in Iowa in a fairly small town who only had images of what inner city life was like for African-Americans from Hollywood. I got a chance to see what it was really like. And this story is one that is the stuff of Hollywood dreams, but it showed us the struggle. It showed us the reality of it, that talent and big dreams don't always lead to the fulfillment of the American dream, like Hollywood often shows us. And you talked about the cultural impact of the NBA. It's something I thought about as well when I was thinking about this film again in my mind, because that time period here in Chicago, you can't think about basketball without thinking about Michael Jordan. This film was being shot over his main years, his prime years of prominence. He won his first titles, 1991 to 1993. This movie, of course, came out in 94. And we all know the commercial, the Gatorade commercial, everyone wants to be like Mike. It sounds great in commercials. Hoop Dream shows you what it really takes and what it's really like to try to be like Mike. Yeah, like great documentaries, it works as a wonderful time capsule as well. Mm -hmm. Number one, Forrest Gump. Went with Forrest Gump. Yeah. Now, Forrest Gump was positioned in 1994 and even more so since, I think, as the anti-pulp fiction. The Academy got it right is what you're saying. Forrest Gump. Well, they should have gone with Pulp Fiction. They should have gone with Pulp Fiction. And maybe that's a good thing to preface here as uh, we're expecting what sort of feedback we might get. I think Pulp Fiction is the better film. It is the film of 1994. But it was a tougher decision to make revisiting both of them. And it's been a tough decision for me since they both came out. They're close. They're close. I'll just say that. But it's been thought of as having to like one or the other. Ever since. I I get that sense anyway. I don't think that was true then. It's not true now that you have to feel that way. There are plenty of reasons to appreciate both. And one is their similarly deft handling of a complicated narrative. I think they both handle narratives quite well that are tough. There are transitions between decades 
and thematic concerns here that are so well crafted. Just one example is the running montage, mm-hmm. where that takes us across history and at the same time through Forrest as he comes to terms with what his relationship with Jenny really is. Will you marry me? I'd make a good husband, Jenny. You would, Forrest. But you won't marry me. You don't want to marry me. Why don't you love me, Jenny? I'm not a smart man. But I know what love is. Revisiting Forrest Gump again, there were many things I love about this film still. And one of them stood out to me, especially because of watching Alhazar Balthazar in the same week. The mythic character of Forrest Gump, and I see him as a mythic character uh, more than a realistic portrayal of someone who's mentally challenged or something like that, because I often bristle at those sort of portrayals and things like I Am Sam, and I I put Forrest Gump in a different category. It's a better film, certainly. Well, (laughs) for a lot of reasons. Yeah. But the mythic character of Forrest Gump, I think, also offers us this gaze of innocence that I talked about with Balthazar. And so it's a different way of looking at both American and personal history when we're experiencing all of this through Forrest's eyes. I really think this is an authentic film. It's gotten a reputation as being too sentimental or hokey. Watching it again, it did not feel that way to me. I think it's authentic. I think it's artful. I think it's genuinely moving. And like I said, it made the decision of the best film of 1994 tougher than many might expect. Well, I didn't get a chance to revisit Forrest Gump, and I would have liked to because like Pulp Fiction, it's one I saw in the theater twice when it came out and responded very favorably to it both times, but haven't seen it since, maybe caught scenes here and there on TV. But I'm unashamed as well about loving that film. It seems to have become fashionable to dislike that movie, maybe because it beat out Pulp Fiction. But that's really not fair to the movie. The Academy makes mistakes all the time, as we've certainly documented here on the show. I remember reading some critics then, and I haven't revisited their comments since, so I may be getting this wrong, but I remember there was a sense among some critics that, it was just too simple. Its its view of history was too reductionist, and, and they were really offended by it almost. And I remember reading that at the time and thinking, it's almost like complaining about a black and white film for being black and white or an animated film for being animated. That's what Forrest Gump is. We're not supposed to take it seriously as this expose of the 20th century. It's this quick jaunt, funny jaunt through 20th century America through the character of Forrest Gump. So it's not and a nothing more lesson, than that. Yeah. It's not a history lesson. I like Forrest Gump as well, but it is one I do want to revisit and see if I would definitely consider it for this list or not. As it is, it's just an honorable mention. For me, my number one, another film that came up earlier in this list. And I was really nervous before we did this top five, Josh, that we would have a lot of overlap. Turns out we only have two hoop dreams in this movie, Chunking Express. Oh, the nice. Wong Kar Wai film is my number one. And as I was reviewing my top five picks, I recognized that the theme of escape is really something that ran through my picks. Nanny Moretti leaving Rome for the islands and Caro Diario, Mickey and Mallory on the run from their families and the police and natural born killers, the prison and Shawshank Redemption, poverty in the inner city and hoop dreams. And then that brings us to Chunking Express, which is a film in which these protagonists are really trapped in prisons of their own making. They're living in a thriving, bustling city surrounded by millions of people, but they're somehow stuck in their own worlds. They're stuck in their own heads. They feel isolated and alone, and they're looking for some kind of escape, some kind of release from their worlds. 
And it's a movie that reminds me of another great Wong Kar Wai movie, In the Mood for Love, where you have these characters wanting desperately to connect with someone. You talked about that theme of disconnection. Of course, the great stars of the film, including Tony Leung and Fei Wong, are so good. You've got Christopher Doyle's cinematography, which you touched on as well. And I guess I'll close with a quote here from our friend at the AV Club, the editor there, Keith Phipps, who wrote this in a DVD review of Chunking Express. He says, in the Hong Kong of Chunking Express, nothing stays put. Crowds pulse through streets lit by the glow of convenience stores and lined with fresh fruit and questionable electronics. Diners eat on the run, often from stands like the Midnight Express, a friendly establishment that wraps salads and fish and chips in aluminum foil as if they were interchangeable and already well on their way to being trash. The environment's constant reminders of the impermanence of all things can take a psychic toll on its residents, which I just love the eloquence of how Keith stated that. I think he sums up the film nicely. But again, with this film and others, on my top five, there's something about people wanting something more permanent, striving to find something real. I don't know if I can put that in a larger perspective and talk about how it really relates to that time period or not, but it is something that stood out to me as I went through my picks of the best films of 1994. So Chunking Express, my number one. Josh, what about any honorable mentions? Well, we talked about Quiz Show, definitely thought about that, just didn't have time to revisit it. Exotica is also one that I yeah, would have Adam liked McGoin. to have revisit. Yep. And I'm sure there's a whole list of films that I've never seen at all since I wasn't reviewing at that time. And we'll, we'll likely hear about those, so I'll be eager to see what uh, some of those titles are. Well, I'll mention three of them. This okay. is my for shame list that I know are going to come up. You're for shaming up. yourself. I'm shaming okay. myself preemptively. I know people are going to write in about Bellatar's. Seven and a half hour yes, Satan yes. Tango, which I haven't seen. I really wanted to see Louis Maul's film Vanya on 42nd Street. Didn't have time to catch up with that. And somehow I've seen other Witt Stillman films, but not Barcelona, which I think a lot of people feel is probably his best. Okay. I'm not a big Witt Stillman guy, so I really wanted to see if Barcelona is one that would work for me, but didn't have time. I don't know whether I'd found God since coming to Barcelona or was just going through a religious phase. It all begun shortly after the incredibly sad and guilt-ridden breakup with Betty, with whom I'd gotten deeply involved, including carnally, despite never having really loved her. The almost irresistible attraction of physical beauty had transformed a good friendship into another horrible premarital situation. All this had led pretty directly to the Old Testament. So it's been three years, Adam. Have you caught up with Bellatar's Satan Tango yet? I think Bellatar and I are done professionally. You didn't like the potato movie either, did you? Was that <laughs> his? The Turin Horse. Yeah. I've seen at least one other Bellatar movie that I didn't care for that much either. But that's one people do hail as a masterpiece. So eventually I'll catch up with it. But of course I haven't. And I also haven't caught up with Whit Stillman's Barcelona yet either. For March 2012, that was again our top five films of 1994. It's episode 390 in the Film Spotting archives, which you can find over at filmspotting.net. Before we go, we are going to revisit this list by jumping into the mailbag and sharing some of your feedback on our top five films of 1994. And I love where we're starting, Josh. Let's just jump in. Andy McGee. Oh, Josh. At first, I thought that it was a great joke, but the seconds tick by and no, you're serious. Oh, my Lord. I should point out probably the subject was Forrest Gump. Well, I was going I was going to say this could apply to many <laughs> so situations many here. Said. I need some more specifics. Forrest Gump. Oh, I'll stand by Forrest Gump. Come on, Andy. Well, Sean McArdle in Canton, Ohio. He's got your back, Josh. Well, after all these months, I've finally jumped from Team Maddie to Team Josh. His list of the top movies, save for his exclusion of the Shawshank Redemption, has won me over. I'm sure that he's going to take some flack for listing Forrest Gump as his number one movie, not Pulp Fiction of 1994, but I've got his back. Well, we... 
yes did explain that i did have pulp fiction ahead of forrest gump so relax he has some credibility people get up off the floor andy it's not that bad Forrest Gump, Sean continues, has far more nuance than most cinephiles would care to admit. At its heart, Forrest Gump is about an unreliable narrator, and he is misleading the audience as much as Verbal Kint does in Usual Suspects. Everything he says on that park bench is suspect. Every incredulous encounter, every emotion, every interpretation of events is a tall tale. Forrest is a liar. And the narrative lie that he has constructed and recounts propagates the lies his mama always said. I don't know. Are you buying this take, Josh? This is an interesting theory. Let me finish what uh, Sean says here. And Kobayashi, where's he involved? Dishonesty, all of his stupid is as stupid does mannerisms are completely removed in one brutally honest scene. When Forrest realizes he has a son, his facade crumbles and we see a tortured person. He is acutely aware of his suffering, of his station in life, and that he is indeed different. He says, is he smart or is he... And he can't even allow himself to say the words stupid like me. It's a heartbreaking scene, a moment of sincerity that compromises his otherwise naive worldview. And that's all I got to say about that. Well, well played, Sean. I'm with Sean that that is a heartbreaking scene. It's heartbreaking. Scene. I, I think for me, it's more that it, it reveals a level of awareness that Forrest has that we were not aware of before. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I buy that Forrest is pulling one over on us the whole movie long. Sure. Though I can generally buy the notion that we're not supposed to trust every single thing he's saying, mainly just because everybody's an unreliable narrator, right? If you're recounting the story of your life, you're going to remember well, and, it a certain way. And that way. movie, too, which is organized as a series of tall tales. Yeah. But that moment, I do remember that exact moment, of course, that Sean is talking about the young son played by Haley Joel Osment That's of the right. Sixth Sense fame. And seeing that one line reading, I was like, oh, yeah, give him the Oscar. Isn't he beautiful? It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But... Is, is he smart? He's very smart. He's one of the smartest in his class. It's good enough. I right know. there. Doesn't know. matter what else he did in the movie. But it's... It's true. But I don't mean too. that in a bad it's way. Not ju- it's no, not I mean he really deserved the it's, Oscar. Yes, yes. It was that good. Sorry. Jean-Claude Limoges in Tecumseh, Ontario, Canada. His top five, The Shawshank Redemption. Highly overrated by the IMDb community, but it is still a great film. For friends of mine who want to get more into film and somehow haven't watched this one, I know it'll be a safe choice, a true crowd pleaser. Chunking Express made both of our lists. Exotica. The Adam McGoin film, luckily, the last half of this film found its footing in a big way. Even though the seedy atmosphere and creepy characters were interesting, the film was really going nowhere. Then again, maybe that was the point. This has an ending and a tone that will stay with you long after it's over. Number two for Jean-Claude, Hoop Dreams with us. And and number one, Pulp Fiction, does anything else really need to be said? Well, no, probably not. We tried our best, gave it a good 30 minutes or so, had a fun discussion. 30 minutes worth. I loved that revisit of Pulp Fiction. We began our Sacred Cows in a very strong way, I think, with that review. All right. Thanks for leaving me Anthony's last name to read here. Liver Scholey. Wow. Wow. Liver Scholey. you. In Astoria. There you are. Great job revisiting the year-by-year countdowns. It has been a while, and I always really enjoyed them. Now, that said, how could you not even mention Clerks? I find this a particularly shocking omission on the heels of you, Adam, putting the View universe in your top five comedy ensembles. How could you possibly recognize the work of the Smith group of characters without here crediting the first and best feature film from that group? More so, Clerks deserves to be on this 1994 list simply on its merits. I would argue that over the 18 years since its release, no American comedy was written as well. The characters and dialogue of Clerks are unforgettable. And on the argument of a movie making this list for its role as a time capsule of the era, what could be better? 
Clerks came at the beginning of a boom in independent cinema in America and the rise of Sundance. One could argue that the independent movement has since been corrupted and they would be right to do so. But for a few years there, Clerks was part of a group of films that gave rise to something special. Financed for $27,000 on a collection of maxed out credit cards, Clerks embodies the best ideals of American independent cinema. Love the show, but you dropped the ball on this one, guys. Well argued, Anthony. And as I recall, I wrote back to Anthony, and he wasn't buying my ruse, that Clerks was one of my honorable mentions that didn't get honorably mentioned. But it was. I think it was in my top 15 or so of that year, just not quite high enough to make the cut for that show. We also heard from Yazid in Saudi Arabia. He says, I'm stunned that you failed to even mention The Lion King as one of the best films of 1994, a film that's not only considered one of the best in animation, it's a true milestone to Disney in terms of commercial success and legacy. I was six years old when it first came out, and I watched it a zillion times, and I also went to the musical twice when I was in New York City. I memorize every spoken line in English and Arabic, and I believe Mufasa's death scene is one of the most powerful death scenes. The movie also introduces some really hilarious deep characters, Timon, Pumbaa, Zazu, Jeremy Irons as Scar is just chilling, and no one can forget the brilliant music and songs by Hans Zimmer and Elton John, their best work by far. Well, maybe in movies, but Elton had some pretty good stuff in the 70s, Yazid. Believe me, it's not only nostalgic, The Lion King is truly one of the best movies of the 1990s. I was about to give you heat for ignoring bullets over Broadway, but Adam corrected it in the honorable mentions. Love Josh's inclusion of Ed Wood. I believe you had a good response to this one. You have given The Lion King some love over the years, including maybe the week before that show. That might have been it. And also, I think it just speaks to what a great year 94 was. So Lion King, it was probably my number six, seven, something like that Hmm. of that year. Scott Ross wrote from Rockville, Maryland, my favorite film of 1994 also starred Bruce Willis, giving another wonderfully understated performance, and that is Nobody's Fool. The film is imbued with great humanity by Robert Benton, who allows all his actors to shine, including Melanie Griffith. This wasn't Paul Newman's cinematic swan song, but it should have been. I watch this movie every year since, and it hasn't diminished. I look forward to your best of 93. That was my Annis Mirabilis. So I didn't look at the responses we got to our top five films of 1993, but we did do 93 about a year later. So, Scott, I hope we came through, and I hope you enjoyed that list. Unfortunately, Nobody's Fool, a movie from 94, I still haven't caught up with, Josh, and that goes for our last bit of feedback here, Julie Casey, her pick, Ooh, I Can't Believe You Left Off Il Postino. Not even an honorable mention. When I reviewed the list from 1994, that was the one movie I would most like to revisit. I haven't seen it since then, but remember it as just a charming, heartfelt movie that made me smile. What do you think? Obviously, I think nothing, because I still haven't seen it. I believe a Best Picture nominee from 94. You'll be seeing it after you see Satan Tango. And Barcelona. There you go. Just add it to the list. Those are our top five films of 1994. If you didn't already send us your feedback to that top five, go ahead and do it. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at filmspotting, that's Adam, and Larson on Film, that's me. We're also at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews and top fives, including reviews of all the best movies of the year so far candidates that we've given you in this week's poll. Again, you can vote now at filmspotting.net. Some new movies out this weekend in limited release, Big Game, When Air Force One is shot down in the remote wilderness, a young teen rescues President Samuel L. Jackson. Fake movie. I'm calling it. This is a fake movie. That Samuel L. Jackson needs rescuing? That's part of it. Or it just seems too good to be true. 
I, I, there's just all sorts of questions here. Well, Sam made this one up. How about questions? He might have, and I would be I dumb he, enough to read it. I think he does so, that to us sometimes. I'm so incredibly out of the loop. He did just put that in to make me look silly, I'm didn't Colin he? I'm calling fake movie. <sighs> Love that guy. Infinitely Polar Bear. I know that's a real movie. Yeah. Despite this the one title. Exists. Set in the 70s, a manic depressive dad, Mark Ruffalo, tries to win back his wife, Zoe Saldana, by attempting to take full responsibility for their young daughter. See, I thought she was the one who was manic depressive, but I'm going to trust Sam on this one. The Overnight, a comedy starring Adam Scott and Jason Schwartzman about a play date between a pair of L.A. couples. Here at the Gene Siskel Film Center, a little chaos is opening. That's the romantic comedy set in the court of King Louis XIV with Kate Winslet, Alan Rickman directs, and Manglehorn also at the Siskel, the Pacino-David Gordon Green joint. Music Box is showing Eden. This is the new film from Mia Hansen-Love, who did a great movie a few years ago called Goodbye First Love. I know it was at one point streaming on Netflix. I'm not sure if Goodbye First Love is still there or not, but this is a movie about the 90s French rave scene. Again, that's Eden. Out in wide release, Max. Before he went mad. Max Rokotansky was apparently a war veteran German shepherd who returns home and is adopted by a loving family. Or maybe this is just not the best summer to name your heartwarming family drama, Max. I heard he has a chihuahua for a blood bag. (laughs) Well played. Ted 2, also out. Mark Wahlberg, Seth MacFarlane. Next week, we're taking a pre-4th of July vacation. Radio listeners will get to hear our reviews of the Apu Trilogy. The first part of the Statue Ray Marathon we did earlier this year will return the week following with our top five movies of the year so far. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Need to amp that up about hooah. There you go. That's how he my would. Favorite. Hoo, that's how he'd hoo ha and manglehorn. He'd get, my oh, Pacino oh, thing. Exactly. Oh, my Pacino thing is anytime someone mentioned like I, I had to hold back. I had to suppress so badly during both of our polls, the reading of the poll and the results when we talk about Vincent Hanna. Because when I think of Vincent Hanna and he, all I think about is Hank Azaria being like that bitch. He's talking about. Uh, Ashley Judd. Like, I don't know why I ever listened to her. And he's like, because she's got a great ass. (laughs) It's my favorite. Yeah.